Rachel, there are notes on the sideboard. And you can probably squeeze in next to Abby. Well, let's uh, be uh, grateful once again. Dear Lord, we're thankful for a pleasant January evening and we're grateful for the beautiful day today. We'd ask that you would bless our time in your word and thank St. Paul for us. In your son's name, amen. Okay, as we push further in big chunks into Romans, it is always good to bear in mind what where we have been in Romans. And the first couple chapters had to do with sin. You know, he was against it, but everybody was guilty of it. Uh, Gentile and Jew alike, from different perspectives. And in chapter 3, when he closes in at midway through chapter 3, the whole world is guilty of sin. Everybody is under the power of sin. And then he says in verse 21, But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. A great gospel statement. Um, And then through chapter 4, he's arguing through the example of Abraham how it's always been this way. It has always been a matter of the heart. It has always been faith. Abraham was the forefather of those with faith before he was the forefather of those uh, circumcised of the Jews. Um, And then he gets to verse 16, that is why it depends on faith, in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his descendants. Now, so he's, he's, he's laid out the basic human problem of sin, Jew and Gentile alike. He's laid out the basic gospel answer. Um, so that brings us up to chapter 5. Now, chapter 5 chapter 6 are wonderful chapters in their, you know, just wonderful uh, stuff. They're also, like most of Romans, great fodder for all sorts of theological debates. Um, and as I said at the beginning, we want to be less concerned about which theological camp something supports, even if it's our own, uh, because Paul was probably not writing any of it to support any theological camp. No camps existed. Uh, nobody had been fighting over it long enough. He was just writing it down and trying to communicate something clearly to, uh, uh, to these people he did not know uh, in Rome. But he's following off of chapter 4. Therefore, verse 1, since we are justified by faith, we have peace with God. Now, I I always like to mention this, that terms like peace, joy, faith, grace, are all these God terms that we good Protestant Christians throw into sentences to make them sound more spiritual. That's not what Paul's doing. Remember, this is a new religion. This is a sect that is just coming up out of the followers of a um, out of the followers of a uh, 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 strange. Uh, hey, court rights. Um, notes are on the buffet side table. Uh, chairs are wherever you can find them. We just started. They were talking a lot. We're just verse. We're in verse one. Since we are justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. 
it almost is so obvious that that we don't we don't think about what he just said. What peace with God is? Billy Graham had a great book called Peace with God, I believe. Um, This puts you, because the basic thing is, this puts you in right standing with God. Since you're justified by faith, since righteousness is what God is looking for, since righteousness is what he wants out of his creation, since seeking him and is the path to that righteousness, seeking him in active righteousness has not happened with anybody, but seeking him for, uh, by faith and grace is, and he has provided righteousness, that has put those people at a state of peace. They had been at war. They had been disordered with God. They, they lived on the surface of a planet God had made in a way that did not please the God who made the planet, in the way the God that made them was not pleased. And he was at war with them. They were enemies of God. Um, and when we were justified, when the, remember the word justified just means made righteous. When we were made righteous by faith, we have peace with God. People are always looking for peace. And I, I have, and I don't mean to land on this too much, and I didn't even finish really the first sentence, uh, but the idea of peace, all peace, the simple equation, order produces peace. The kind of order, the kind of peace. So I have military order, military peace, domestic order, domestic peace, spiritual order, spiritual peace. Then, what is in the order that makes the peace? In other words, if you need spiritual peace, you produce a spiritual order. People invent all kinds of spiritual orders. But the optimum order that would make you the most spiritual peace is the order God has expected, and he expects righteousness. And we have to find our way, through faith, to that righteousness, through the Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we've obtained access to this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in our hope of sharing the glory of God. Now, sometimes with Paul, again, because we get so confused by the theologies that get imposed upon the text, we have to sit there and parse the sentences out. We have to say, okay, what did he just say? Is it, when you want to sometimes look up the words in Greek or look them up in a dictionary if you don't know the English word, um, we have obtained access to the grace. Jesus Christ is described elsewhere as in Hebrews and um, as the mediator between God and man. He is the entry point, the place where we can go to open a door to get to the God that we were seeking. If we were the people who came to faith, we were seeking God and found that in Christ we had access to this grace. And it, that's where we stand. It, it brings about, it says, uh, um, we rejoice in our hope of sharing the glory of God. Two things are the case. One is your state now, and one is your state later. And you're making a claim about both of those in your Christianity. One of them is, I'm at peace with God. That's what I've obtained. I've gotten that through this access to grace. And I have a joy about what's coming. Now, a lot of people, 
they try to drum up whatever kind of religious peace they can get. They, they, they have all sorts of methods of getting at this satisfied Christian life. And you can get all sorts of books and all sorts of book dealerships about how this is going to happen. Purpose Driven Life, or um, I can think of the titles, I can just make up titles and I'd probably be right. Um, there's certain kinds of books that are trying to give you that leg up in the current life that you lead. And others try to point you to the second coming, the return of the Lord, the apocalypse, the rapture, the tribulation, whatever it is, to fill in all the blanks about your thinking about the end um, so that you can hope. But the relationships with it are different. It's our righteousness that we've been given through faith. And we have a rejoicing state because of the nature of our hope. Now, he goes into this, more than that, he says, verse 3, we rejoice in our sufferings. We rejoice in our hope, but we rejoice in our sufferings. That's part of the problem with what we get from God. What we get from God is peace with God. We have that now. The righteousness of faith brings us peace with God, does not fix the planet, doesn't stop the cancer, doesn't stop uh, wicked people being wicked. It just puts you at peace with God. That's your now. But those ills build the second half of this promise. We have peace with God, and we have a rejoicing in our hope. But look at what this rejoicing in our sufferings, you say, well, how do, how do we rejoice? Is it, is it just telling each other stories of the golden streets? And, and my older brother always used to think about golden footballs. I was much more realistic. <coughs> I said, can you imagine trying to catch a golden football? <laughs> um, so I, I, I disabuse him with that you know, awful theological notion. But, um, so we, we, but that seems a little, uh, what's, what's the word, uh, simplistic or, or childish. We rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not disappoint us. Because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, which has been given to us. We've not only been recipients of peace with God, we've been recipients, if you jump to the end of the thought, of the love of God. Love has been poured into our hearts by the Holy Spirit. Galatians 5, fruit of the Spirit is love. And through the Holy Spirit, God's love has been poured out to us. But... Those things bracketing this little expression of how Christians deal with the state of the earth. Uh, they were dealing... Now, the persecutions hadn't really begun at this point by the Romans. Um, the Jews were chasing Paul around and giving a lot of grief, but the Romans were pretty upstanding and just and, and kindly to Paul, uh, even when he was in prison. Uh, so it hasn't reached that state. Um, but we've all got situations that we would consider to be inconveniences of this mortal coil. And uh, we have to look at it and say, like James says, count it all joy, my brethren, when you meet various trials. Rejoice in our sufferings because of a knowledge. The knowledge is that suffering, you endure it. Now, the ladies were laughing this just before Bible study about <laughs> a Dutch video, YouTube video of two guys who've been wired up to give them contractions like women have in pregnancy. They, did, they only, one of them didn't make it, one made it two hours, but 
they were whimpering like babies in Dutch, and uh, the women were laughing like it was God's judgment on <laughs> these two men. They should have been admiring them. Um, I don't know what brought that up, but we know that women have a, have a baby to look forward to, right? Those guys had nothing, nothing to look forward to other than bragging rights and embarrassment on the web. Um, suffering produces, we have a knowledge of, about where it takes you. Because suffering you do have to endure, it doesn't go away for the asking. It doesn't just, well, I don't like this. And I say, so? I remember that in boot camp. It didn't matter how much you didn't like it anymore, didn't want this to be happening anymore. It kept happening. The next day, you got back up again, and they still were doing that to you. And they kept doing it to you until they were done. And you endure. Now, what endurance produces, if you're suffering, and this has got to be our thought, it says, knowing this, we rejoice because we have this knowledge. The suffering, endurance, endurance character. And I looked up the word character. It has to do with, it's not like good character, like, you know, Dudley Do-Right or something like that. He has good character, um, sterling young man. No, he's been proven. The word is, it proves you. Constancy, the endurance, is constancy and it proves and when something is proven about your current state, remember, the peace of God, the love of God has been poured out to you, both cases. In the suffering, those intangibles, those um, states of being that you do have now, you don't have to wait for, they all come from the grace that is available to you in Jesus Christ now, not later. We're only talking about the nature of your rejoicing and your hope of sharing the glory of God. So, the constancy, the suffering allows you, it, it, it creates a circumstance in which you can have the relationship with the not yet that is resting in it, that can rejoice in it, because the not yet only has what you do have as the working capital. And if someone hasn't been watching over their faith in Jesus Christ and haven't been, hasn't been feeling the peace of God, hasn't been dealing with the love of God, hasn't looked at suffering as anything other than a cause for complaint, beefing, griping, whatever, rather than a cause for rejoicing, it means that they, they have not been proved. They haven't been constant. They haven't been proved. And of course... Only a proven faith, only a proven person is going to come out of this with a sense of their hope that doesn't disappoint them. Verse 6. While we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. Well, one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for a good man one will dare even to die. But God shows his love for us that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Now, we, we know the passage. We've read the passage. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Well, the benefit of that kind of love, and the lesson in this kind of love, is that it's unilateral. It is not responsive. It is not because we were lovely. It's because he is love. Because, have you ever had that experience where, you know, that you're having an especially nice day and your hair is behaving, 
and everything was right and the right thing for breakfast and everybody was and so you're, you're out there in the world and somebody is being a little snippy at the grocery store and to the the, the checker and and you're just your your heart goes out to both of them and you you you're feeling and you do and you try to do something nice for the gripey old lady that's ahead of you. Where you were being nice through no fault of their earning it, they did not deserve that niceness. Everyone else, our other loves are reciprocal. A friend is a friend, somebody brings something into your life that that you share. Uh, a, a lover is the same way, uh, romantic love. Um, you're responding to something in them. Christian, Christian love is a state of being loving, being nice, and you're looking for people to do it to. They're victims of your love, not causes. And that's what God is like. Well, he, was, he shows his love for us, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Since, therefore... We are now justified by his blood. Remember the first four chapters had brought you through sin, through your excuses, into the gospel, and then you know sort of pounded that point home a few times. And we've got peace with God. We've got the love of God. Verse uh, 5 for the love and verse 1 for the peace. Um, since, therefore, we are now justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. <coughs> We are, um, this is part of the lesson on your hope. This is not merely, um, God promised me heaven, and how am I going to hope for that? Oh, I guess I'll endure, I'll have constancy, and, and then be proven, and then my life in Christ. It's not merely whether or not his promise of glory is coming through to you, but the promise of his failure to damn you is coming through. Okay, He has a promise it says in Ephesians, we were by nature children of wrath. We are not just, remember, this is a, a, a pretty major thing, this grace, because it, you were a sinner. You didn't deserve it. By faith alone, you came to God in Christ, and he said, I will credit you as righteous for your believing me, for your coming to me with your seeking. We talked about it as this axis of seeking self or seeking, seeking God in Christ. And because of that, he is going to consider you righteous. And you want, you're looking at your state with this God, and the peace of God overwhelms you, the love of God overwhelms you, that he would die for you. How much more, and he uses that little phrase throughout this passage, how much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God? Because we know who we're dealing with. What we know now tells us something about our hope. Our hope doesn't disappoint us. It doesn't suddenly turn around and go, hey, but you still got to pay for your sins. Okay? I, I'm giving you my peace. You can live out the rest of your days in some sort of religious goodwill, but you know, you still got to pay up. The Catholics would be kind of like that. You still got to pay up with purgatory at some point. You know, you got to do your time for the thing. You might be one of the faithful, but still, uh, these things were not taken care of. We've been, we will be saved because he's that kind of loving. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more, in red, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. So he wants to let you know that, that this is natural for the God we adore. This is, well, just think about it for a moment. If you've been through the reconciliation, 
and so much depends. You don't want to try to be proving heaven to somebody you're not sure believes. You don't want to guarantee them any kind of uh, entree without them having passed through reconciliation to the peace with God. Because that's kind of why they want you to talk them into believing they're going to heaven, because they don't have anything that is being proved right. Paul's just pointing to that which is proven in your belief, that which occurs in you now because you've experienced Jesus Christ, because you've been um, regenerated, these things should be, yeah, see, you were an enemy before this, his love, his grace, you came out reconciled, right? If we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. How much more will we be saved now that we're reconciled, moving us from just reconciled to not undergoing wrath, not just reconciled, but passing on into glory. Now, Paul, the, 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 all these themes are constantly floating on the surface back and forth out of Paul, all the way down to Romans 8, where Paul starts to deal with the glorification of the believer. Nothing shall separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. There is, there is a... Um, an interrelationship of all these concepts rooted in your faith in Jesus Christ. What you do know and have now. Then you extrapolate out. But the extrapolation is one not of um, not so much because we need to make a theological connection between Christ's death and reconciliation of enemies and re reconciled people being uh, saved into glory by his life. Death, life, uh, it's this is encouragement. This is not written as theology, but encouragement. Not only so, not only so, verse 11, but we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received our reconciliation. So, the things we rejoice in, our hope, our sufferings, and uh, that, that all of this is true, that this is all rooted in your being reconciled, reconciled to God through Jesus Christ. So I, on the side I have it, just to keep it simple, uh, since, what have you received? Much, for, much more for what, have, what do you hope? That, that looking at what do you have as the ground for Paul's reasoning as to what you're going to get. Not because you earned heaven, but because you can be confident and not be disappointed and be able to rejoice in that hope without having seen. All of your faith, remember, is the conviction of things hoped for, the, the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. And many aspects of your Christian life are that way, even the now. But the now reaps the harvest of peace with God and the love of God. You've got that. You experience the re reconciliation and its effects. And if you're not experiencing the reconciliation and its effects, you want to go back to that step. Because that will throw everything, like dominoes, it, it'll start falling over. Now he starts to say things. He's doing this as a deeper explication of what um, he's been talking about, but it does bring up some questions. Therefore, verse 12, as sin came into the world through one man, 
and death through sin. And so death spread to all men, because all men sinned. Sin was indeed in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sins were not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. So a bunch of things get thrown at you. Um, a lot of people look at that passage as if it were teaching original sin, the doctrine of original sin that Catholics had back in the early centuries of the church, still do, uh, that everyone inherits the sin of Adam. That's why they baptized infants, was to absolve them of the sin of Adam. And then they could die of high infant mortality in ancient days, and so people were much more comforted by having their ba babies baptized uh, because of this. And still today, people will turn, if I, I'm talking to them about original sin, they'll turn to Romans 5 and point this out to me. Well, the question is, did Adam's sin kill me, or did his sin make sure I sinned, and my sin killed me? Two different, two different questions. My relationship with Adam is definite, right? Because because of what he did, death spreads to all men. But it says there in red, and St. Paul didn't put it in red, I did. But sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin. That was the curse that was put, you know, the day you eat of the tree in the midst of the garden, you shall surely die. And so death spread to all men, but it doesn't say because you were related to Adam. Something passed on to you, but if I said it was his guilt, which is the standard doctrine of original sin, uh, I would be already violating a portion of scripture. I have Ezekiel 18 here, just the first couple, three verses. The whole chapter is about this, but I, I put the key things. What do you mean by repeating this proverb concerning the land of Israel? The fathers have eaten sour grapes, and the children's teeth are set on edge. As I live, says the Lord God, this proverb shall no more be used by you in Israel. Behold, all souls are mine. The soul of the Father as well as the soul of the Son is mine. The soul that sinned shall die. Okay? He says very clearly through the rest of the chapter, he gives all these examples. Well, what if you had a good father and the kid went bad? Or what if you had a bad father and the kid was good? And, you know, uh, there's no connection. Moral guilt does not transfer or moral credit doesn't transfer. No matter how many times you quote the, the, the verse that under the thousand generations of those that love him, or the sins of the fathers are visited on the third and the fourth generation. Oh, certainly. There's something from Adam that is visited on us. But it, there is no moral guilt for the sin of your father. Like if you happen to adopt a black child from Zimbabwe, who happened to be the son of a killing tribal lord who murdered 50 of his wives, and you adopted the kid at two weeks old, would he be growing up guilty of his father's sins? The Bible does not suggest that that kind of federal transference of guilt goes on. But what does? I mean, it obviously, did his sin make sure I sinned? Now, you can go back and look at the fall. Uh, it's not our topic right now, I, I, would, I would just leave it with saying that, that in the fall of Adam, it wasn't Adam's disobedience that did anything to us. 
It's what they ate that did something to us. He ate the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and knowledge of good and evil, which is neither good nor bad, uh, was passed on to all of us, and consequently we all sinned. But even in this verse, death spread to all men because all men sinned. I didn't, wasn't born dead, which is the standard original sin doctrine. I became dead out of something I shared with Adam. I became dead because I followed him in sin. And then he goes, hold it, but so sin was in the world before the law was given. Because the law didn't come. I mean, if you think about biblical dates, Adam is uh, you know, close to 4000 B.C. And the law is at 1440 B.C. Oh, uh, that's a difference of, what, 2,600 years? Quite a distance of time. Um, and the law wasn't until Moses, 1440. So, how could there be sin? Well, he covered that back in chapter 1. The Gentile did by nature what the law requires, showing that the law was written on his hearts. That's what we got from Adam, was an internal law, a conscience. We didn't get guilt. We got a conscience. We knew what was bad. Adam and Eve knew they had to go put some clothes on. They suddenly knew what was wrong. They knew the rules. <clears throat> but not as detailed, perhaps, as the law. It says, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Because that's just a basic truth. He's letting you use that truth to say, hold it, if you're counting sin, and it was before the law, but sin is not counted where there is no law, there must have been a law because death reigned from Adam to Moses even over those whose sins were not like the transgression of Adam who is a type of the one who was to come. When I mentioned I think at the beginning of this uh, Bible study where Peter says our, this also our beloved brother Paul wrote as he does in all of his letters something in them are hard to understand which the wicked and unstable um, uh, twist to their own destruction. So he can be convoluted. He's not a um, uh, he's not a uh, a real clean writer. Sometimes he doesn't finish his sentences. Some things just start running on, and he starts wandering off into some other idea. And it's all true, but it's not complete. I mean, he did that back here. Um, between 12 and 13, he gets off on another subject. He never ends up finishing his thought in verse 12. Um, but he does introduce this idea of Adam being a type. He has already juxtaposed life and death. He has juxtaposed a Jew and Gentile. He has got um, uh, sin and righteousness. Uh, there are various things that are set up as sort of patterns to help you think through these things. And one of them is going to be Adam and Christ. And that's what he covers next. Now, when you say something is a type, when you see the Passover lamb in Egypt, and it's said in the New Testament, Jesus is our Paschal lamb, we know it was a type for Jesus. You know, it had some point that uh, the... the um, uh, the, the, the serpent that Moses raised in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. There is a type. Uh, a lot of times we look at the most obvious trait of the type and, or, 
or Adam says Adam is a type of the one who was to come. But he spends his next paragraph, two paragraphs, comparing how they're kind of not the same. So you have to look for, first off, what the nature of the type is. But the free gift, verse 15, is not like the trespass. It says Adam was a type of the one who was to come. It says, but the free gift is not like the trespass. Adam's famous for the trespass. Thank you very much. I would think it should say Eve, but I'm perhaps a little bitter. Perhaps I'm a little upset that women have ruined it for all of us. But Adam's taking the blame like a man. Yeah, uh, yeah, probably true. You're probably right there. I got it. Because he was also whipped. Um, if he was whipped, it did not take her long, did it? So he took her one bite, boom, he was doing what she said. Um, this is all being recorded. I'm going to get in trouble. But the free gift is not like the trespass. So what Paul starts to do, he starts to say, how, is it, how are they not the same? Rather than, Adam's the type, what's the type? Well, the type, really, if you stop and look, look at the, before we get into it, the type is Adam is guide and Christ is guide. And then he sets up how they're not alike to say how they're not alike in what they guide to. And you'll see that kind of term used. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift in that grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. There's a commonness in manyness. In other words, we both have followers. We both have followers. Not like in the power of its effect. Not like in how great the gain is that the many who followed Adam, 100% of people, the many who followed Christ, not 100% of the people, but the greatness, the differences and the greatness of the thing arrived at. Many died through one man's trespass. The free gift of grace abounded to many. Verse 16, and the free gift is not like the effect of the one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation. But the free gift following many trespasses brings justification. You begin to see that both of these are, you might say, reflected, they're like each other in that they have children. They have followers, disciples. All men, sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all men sinned. Okay? That, that showed that all of us like sheep have gone astray following one sheep at the beginning of time who went off the rails. But when you start to look at the quality, one evil deed brought condemnation. Many evil deeds with faith brings the free gift of justification. So although it's 100%, I mean, you look at terms of doing a graph or, a, you know, how many people followed Adam? 100%. How many followed Jesus? 2%. But the quality of the following the quality of the thing gained they are not like each other it's much more of something and we're not counting numbers now you any of you who know me know that i'm not a big fan of movements revivals 
causes and the like, because I always suspect them of watering down something to get the numbers, because people don't feel that Jesus is winning unless he gets more than the Muslims, or he gets more than the Mormons, or he gets more than whomever. He's already won. The quality of this gift, the power of its effect, the quality of the response, you have condemnation, justification, death reigned, life reigned. And you got either a terminal thing or an eternal thing. It's not, it, it, you're not counting bodies. It's many in either case. I mean, if you think of how many Christians, you have six billion people in the world and say there's only 2%, what's, uh, what's 1% of a billion people? Somebody who did no math? And those kind of numbers, what do you think you're talking about the federal budget? It's 10 million, I think. 10 million? Yeah. 10 million for. Yeah. Yeah. Women know math better than we do. Yeah. I know. Hold it. I have no son. Or he has no father. One of the two. You didn't believe it until Ali said it. Yeah, I, I, couldn't, I couldn't trust that. Guys can say it confidently. But until a woman speaks. I don't know what fruit to eat. Oh, comes back around. Um, you think I should have more of that? More fruit in my diet? Well, nonetheless, you're looking at 10 million people for every billion people. That means about 70 million Christians, if you were thinking just 1% of the population. 70 million Christians. Uh, quite a few more than the few thousand at Pentecost. The gospel of God has had wonderful effect. Nothing compared to the population of the world. But again, we're still, our hearts should be looking at the quality of the salvation rather than the quantities involved. It, or if you want to think in quantitative terms, the quantities of goods. Because if one man's trespass because if, because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace. And that word abundance throws it at, it throws it at you almost heavy-handedly. It's an abundance of something. Brings the, and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through one man, Jesus Christ. Death and life. Adam and Christ. Terminal, eternal. Condemnation, justification. And that's where, when you, when you start to break down what it was that the love of God, that the uh, offer of the free gift, access to this grace means. Because that's the experience you're supposed to be having in Christ. That you're going, I don't, I'm not worried about whether or not I'm part of a movement. I'm not worried about whether or not we're the coolest kids on the block. I'm not worried about, because I'm experiencing something, not waiting for something, not saying, oh God, I wish they could see just a slight vision of heaven, what we're going to receive later. They should be see, seeing a slight vision of what we have now. We have an abundance of grace, peace with God, the love of God through the Holy Spirit. <coughs> Verse 18. Then as one man's trespass led to condemnation for all men. Now this is where I get the guide thing. 
because he, this is a common word being used. Then as one man's trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one man's act of righteousness leads to acquittal and life for all men. Now there he doesn't suggest with the word many that there's any distinction. You know, uh, one had many followers, the other has many followers. They could be different manys. They could be considerably different manys. But we're not thinking of how many. But when he says to all, for all men, he's thinking everyone singly and severally. One man's trespass, all men followed him. But Christ is leading to acquittal in life for all men. He says, Adam led, Christ leads. Now, the doctrine that is affected there is whether or not Jesus died for everybody. Um, Reform thought says he didn't, he died for the elect. Uh, other people would say that he died for everybody and only some, some are saved. And some people say that he died for everybody and everybody will be eventually saved. You know, that's universalism. But uh, uh, you can do with what you want with it, uh, but it seems to suggest that both had universal leading. And we have seen in the first couple chapters that everyone followed Adam. We are looking to see who's going to follow Christ. For as, one, for as by one man's disobedience many were made sinners... So by one man's obedience, many will be made righteous. And he goes back to the many instead of the all. As to what will be, we know that 100% is many for Adam, whatever the percentage is many for Christ, but it's not, it, he led all, but only made righteous many. Verse 20, law came in to increase the trespass. But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. In the fight between what this world has done, being enemies of God, one sin, condemnation, everybody following this, of law just ramping that up, law just coming in and pointing out how wicked people were, grace abounded all the more. Because that is the tension between the two. We, that is the... Uh, the distinction between the two. One is something of abundance, something of life, and one is something of finality, limited, and dead. So that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So that, 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 so that is in red, so that you keep that distinction of the qualitative difference of the two claims in you. Because remember, at the beginning of the book, we had you going one way or the other on this axis of, of obedience, this axis of seeking. Do I hate God and love myself? Do I hate myself and love my God? Do I turn away from me and turn toward God? Do I seek Him? Um, I, what's the, is there a quality shift? I'm putting God up here at the top just arbitrarily or habitually. But do you think of it in terms of abundance here and life and death down here in finality and finitude and the end, whatever. So sin reigned to death so that grace might reign through righteousness to eternal life. Well, chapter 6, like he did in 4, 
and three, the, a series of que a question comes up. What then? What shall we say then? Are we continue in sin that grace may abound? Because someone sees, again, the causal connection, like they did earlier in the book. They see preceding because of, you know, the post hoc ergo propter hoc. Um, and not only not, sins like a seed, full-grown plant, abundant grace. Little seed, little sin, enemies of God, great righteousness and faith. Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we, who have died to sin, still live in it? Have that in red. I think I heard that verse from my father. I don't know, a lot. My mother was always, do all things without grumbling or complaining, or out of the abundance of the heart the mouth speaks. Those were my mother's verses for us. But my father, you know, would was, always had a ministry regarding the holiness of folks, and so, Romans 6, verse 2, how can we who died to sin still live in it? Because it's not merely a beneficial good thing came from a killing, destroying bad thing because as sin reigned death, grace also might reign the righteousness. Well, it seems like an investment then, right? But you don't understand. The preceding evil is what Paul's suggesting to them, not to you. The preceding evil made the great grace necessary, but the nature of the grace negates what they're suggesting. Because it's not merely good came from bad. You know, I told a white lie because it was needed to be done. Uh, it would help things out. The nature of the thing, Paul, Paul's fallback is, he's not just, no, don't do that. It's, how can you who died to sin still live in it? I mean, this is not even a suggestion that will come out of the mind of someone who was made righteous by faith. Okay? Someone who joined the club could say this. Someone who decided, I like the Christian worldview but not someone who had experienced peace with God because their sins had been forgiven and they had been given the righteousness of God and they had felt the love of God through the Holy Spirit. They, could, how, they had died to sin. How could, they, how could they even think that this was a plausible suggestion? Because if your salvation is proven to you through your constancy in suffering, if what you have you know is made right because when you had headache, not when you're planning with your, your adolescent friends, what would you do under tribulation, under person? We always used to talk about this back in the Jesus people days. Could you, you think you could, uh, you think you'd die for Jesus? Oh yeah, we were all, because the girls were there. Yeah, we could die for Jesus. That's different than having a headache when you feel that somehow the heavens have opened and handed you a special dispensation to abuse everyone in reach. <laughs> because it's a little bit of suffering, no proof that you're saved. <coughs> Could 
because other verses came up in my upbringing, too. Things like, rejoice in the Lord always. What? But I'm not happy. And my father would say, fix it. We uh, need to be sure that we are not just creating theologies that are protective mechanisms of, of where some vague religious lack of seeking the righteousness of God, but just enough religion to make you a good family man, just enough religion to make you feel that you're better than the Methodists, um, we need the righteousness of God proven in us. We need the love of God proven in us. We need peace with God proven in us so that we can go, what? How can I, what? You know, since, since all this wonderful, wonderful grace came through after you sinned and because you sinned, why not sin the more? I, I don't know what you're talking about. You're speaking you're Swedish to me. I don't, because I died to sin. That was the point of the grace. It wasn't just grace like, you ran up a really big debt, and without you caring at all, someone paid it. That's not the equation. You desperately wanted it paid, and you pleaded with him, and he paid it. And you sought him so that he would pay it. And you understood the great gift of his son's life he gave to pay it. You start working out the gospel, whatever poetic terms you want to use, but... You understand that, and you knew that this was dying to sin. Do you not know, verse 3, oh, before I go any further, my father also said, do you know the difference between an indicative remark and an imperative remark? Okay, what's an imperative? Command. A command. What's an indicative? Statement. What? Statement. A statement of fact, statement of the state of things. Is verse 2 an imperative or indicative? Well, he's asking a question, but he is making a, a, a truth claim about something. It's indicating that you have died to sin. How can you, who died to sin, still live in it? It seems uh, that is not describing what you should try to do. It is describing what is. Okay? You have died to sin. It is not likely that you would want to live in sin. It's not, it's not asking you to die to sin. It's not telling you to. It's not challenging you to die to sin. It's saying you have died to sin. Do you not know that all of us who have been buried with, baptized in Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? He's describing the nature of things, the nature of the Christian. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death. So that as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. That was the purpose of this circumstance. All of us, if we're Christians, shared that death. And the point of sharing the death is so that we'd have a newness of life. That's the description of what it means to be dying to sin and how could we live in it because there's a newness of life out the other end. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. Basically, the narrative of this grace 
What is the story of the grace? What's, what, what went on with the grace? You and the grace. You and the God. What, what did you work out when you went to him? Did you go to him? Were you united with him in a death like his? We certainly, we have that confidence that we'll be reunited with him in a resurrection because a newness of life comes from this, just like Christ, dying and buried and raised. We know that our old self, to keep the Christ image up, at this point, he becomes a type of you. Or if you want to be more, less blasphemous or less, uh, you are a type after the fact of him. But he did this, died, buried, and raised. We know that our old self was crucified with him so that the sinful body might be destroyed and we might no longer be enslaved to sin. Another indicative. Not an imperative. Not telling us to put us, ourselves to death. We know that our old self was crucified. So that we wouldn't be enslaved to sin. Verse 7. For he who has died is freed from sin. This is all going back. How can we who died to sin still live in it? How would you ever suggest sin as a parcel of your Christian, but you know, this is how, well, kind of this is how we, everyone needs to grow, everybody needs to make some mistakes, you know, because that's how everybody learns. No, you don't have to learn that way. You could do it the right way. You could open the book, you could study the Word of God, you could decide the right thing, rather than driving your life into the wall and then having some counselor help you up and finally get your sins confessed. And you might come out of it, because God is gracious, wonderfully forgive, and where sin abounds, does sin, uh, grace abounds all the more. We know that. But that's not the relationship the grace has to sin. But he goes on, anyone who has died is freed from sin. But if we have died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him. For we know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. The death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. You have to consider at this point, you're doing something with Christ, right? We were, we were all baptized into his death. We were all raised to newness of life. We were all crucified with him so that the sinful body might be destroyed. We know that, that in terms of actual death, someone who has died is freed from sin. So in saying we have died with Christ, we believe we shall also live with him. Now, die with, live with, and what was his death like? His death like was, his death was like, never to die again, death no longer held dominion over him, He died to sin once for all. Now, I, I don't think the phrase is um, a universal atonement phrase. I think it's like, like we use, once for all. means one time is good enough, uh, rather than one t once for all time, not once for all people. I, I don't think the word contains, uh, allows that, even though I believe that that's true. I, I don't think that's there. The death he died, he died to sin the death he died, he died to sin once for all time, but the life he lives, he lives to God. 
So that's what's interesting about this transference. Not only is the old condemnation, death, sin, this shrinking and terminal and final and finite and you might say a, 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 well, it's a dead place. Life has in it this, this sense of abundance, this sense of going on. It's an eternal life. The life he lives, he lives to God. It sounds like he's describing what you ought to be going through in your Christian walk. Never, you don't have to get reconverted. You died to sin once for all. Death no longer has dominion over you. And finally in verse 11, there is an imperative. Finally. Finally an imperative. So you also must. There you go. Must. You've got to. Consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. So what that tells you is you, the imperative here, you've got to view the other passages as indicative. <laughs> you have got to consider what are they? How can we who have died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us have been baptized into Christ, have been baptized into his death? The old self was crucified that we may no longer be enslaved to sin. Those are the nature of the beast. That is the nature of the grace. That is the experience you have had in Christ. And you must consider that so. Now there's a lot of people, and we're going to get to this in well, not next week, it's chapters four, five, six. No, it's next week. Uh, seven, seven and eight? This is five and six? Seven and eight. Chapter seven has that real difficult portion, what people think is difficult, about what people think is the two natures of the believer. But because of this, we're not going there. I mean, we're going to go through Romans 7, but we're going to look at it differently because he says, I've got, I cannot consider myself not dead sin. It's not, I'm not allowed. It's a command. It's told you, this has got to be your frame of mind. In a very, you must. And therefore, you've got a kind of life that is your responsibility. Verse 12, let not sin therefore reign in your mortal bodies. It is not saying sin does not occur. It is saying that you must consider yourself dead to it. And obviously you can still sin, because he's suggesting how you avoid the sin with that consideration. There is not a, um, this is not a sinless perfectionism, where I think uh, the Nazarenes or the Wesleyan uh, movement had a view that a second work of grace where you became a Christian at one point and then you went through sanctification at another point where you no longer sinned anymore, you only made mistakes. Uh, oddly, the mistakes looked oddly like sins. Um, uh, but I've, I've known men who thought they had gone through that second work, uh, thought they had been sanctified and would never sin again. Uh, people deal with it all sorts of different ways. But here, you've got to consider this to be the factual case. You have you've died with Christ. You've died to sin. Sin, and consequently, when sin lands in your life, 
Say you've been considering yourself dead to sin. I'm dead to sin. But then that moment, that lie, that whatever it was, came and went. You know who's to blame. You. You know that you, out of a consideration that only when one of the big dangers, or what if you did not consider yourself dead to sin? If you just didn't obey that verse in verse 11. You considered yourself, well, I have kind of two natures, they're kind of whirling their way around in my life, and I, I can't avoid sin. That's not considering yourself dead to sin. I can't avoid sin. You're lining up for sin. You're just saying, you tag me next. You know, that's the, uh, that's the nature of the beast. But he tells you, let not sin, therefore, because this is true, reign in your mortal bodies to make you obey their passions. Do not yield your members to sin as instruments of wickedness. Because it would have to be a yielding. It'd have to be a giving it up. But yield yourselves to God. This is a choice you're making every step of the way. A one of yielding, but with the consideration that you went through death with Jesus Christ. You yield yourselves to God as men who have been brought from death to life because you consider that to be true. And you go back to the beginning of the passage and say, do I, the beginning of chapter 4, 5, since we're justified by faith, we have peace with God. That, had to be, that has to be proven in you. You have to use these various things, the, how you're reacting to the suffering. Excuse me, the sufferings of the age, sufferings of your life, to see whether or not you know you really have passed from death to life. Have you been regenerated by the Holy Spirit? As men who have brought been passed from death to life, yield. It's a decision separate from the thought that precedes it. I yield as somebody who is in the position believing he is able to. I'm able to yield myself to God and your members to God as instruments of righteousness. Instead of giving yourself over to your members and their passions, I give my members over to God for his direction. When it says, I, I, I'm big on reason over passion and that sort of thing, and Peter it says, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. And that's uh, one if you, if you yield yourself to that which you are no longer like, you have died to sin. You've died with Christ to sin. And if you yield yourself to sin, you're going to have to give it over to some agency in your life to get you to, to give you the inertia to go be bad. Your passions. Your, your passions will just take over. Some boy will make you crazy. Some girl will make you crazy. Some, some need for something will make you steal or tell a lie or Whatever it is, get angry, get uh, upset at people. Whatever the uh, passion that you need to fall back on, because you decided to let rain, let sin rain. But if I decide to let God rain, yielding myself to God, I'm going with that flow. I, as somebody who has passed from death to life, so that righteousness comes out of me naturally. For sin will have no dominion over you. For you're not under law, you're under grace. Because we've just discovered sin and law, they go together. Grace is far more abundant. Remember, it's not like the relationship sin and death 
and law had. It's, it's something far greater. And if you're not getting a measure of the greatness of it, because the beginning of chapter 5, you're getting a measure of the greatness, the, the, the hope that doesn't disappoint, the proved peace with God, the proved love of God. If those things, you don't try to get the theology, you know, figure out what Paul's really saying here, if you haven't gotten the experience yet from the Holy Spirit and God from the, the actual event. Much easier to understand St. Paul about when it says, as men who've been brought from death to life. I remember Roy Connect told me years ago um, when he finally heard this being taught, it was like, oh my gosh, you mean I don't have to sin? It was almost like a second conversion, you know, for him. It, not, not a second work of grace, not sanctification, but it was so wonderful. His, he knew what he had been, call, been called to, and he just lacked the positional agreement with St. Paul on it. Because everybody was telling him, oh, now you got to sin. But sin will have no dominion over you. Just like Christ. He died. So death had no dominion over him. He died, the death he died, he died to sin. So yielding to something that doesn't have dominion over you, since you're not under law, you're under grace. The two worlds. And say, have I defined tragically, and I see this on Facebook, I have mostly Christian friends on Facebook, and they talk abject nonsense, just like everybody else on Facebook, just in Christian terms. I try not to say anything, and I usually don't. I did make a comment the other day to somebody, and they liked it, thankfully. But um, <laughs> Wes Callahan saying something about the first day of sexugesima, or whatever it was, and, and he's always been reminding us of certain points on the church calendar regarding Advent and Christmas. So I finally just said, give it a rest. <laughs> so he thought that was good. But. If it was a Sabbath, that would be, be very appropriate. I am uh, yielding myself as instruments of God <laughs> to not be unrighteous at this moment. <laughs> You're not under law, you're under grace. Do you know the camp you've joined? Just like, I mean, the people who were saying, why don't we sin that grace may abound? And Paul goes, what? Do you not know what all this abundance is? How this is far greater in you than he that is in the world? Uh, since you're under law, you're not under law, you're under grace. You've got to have a taste of that. Now, what then? Verse 15. Are we to sin because we're not under law, but under grace? Everybody's looking for a path to sin. Okay, is this... I, I, whenever I preach a sermon that people don't really sort of like, some, somebody will come up to me and says, um, what if... And they try to structure some situation where they don't have to obey Jesus. You know, that's the, that's the whole, their whole, the feast of reason for them in Christian pursuit is, when do I not have to obey Jesus? Uh, when do I not have to turn the other cheek? Try turning the other cheek just once. Just, just do it once. Everybody's looking for a chance to sin. Are we to sin because we're not under law but under grace? As many people say, that's what the Mormons accuse Christians of, because we believe in salvation by faith alone. They think we're just writing people a blank check to do what they want and get saved just before they die. That they can just, you know, because grace may abound. 
but that's they obviously don't understand. These grace is for the people who sought God. Faith, right? Faith was the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen, and it had to do with the promises of God. And I had to seek that thing that was promised. I had to want that thing that was promised. Not just believe Christian doctrine, not just believe that Jesus was born in a manger and died for our sins. That's not faith. You might feel a whole big thing, and you might sing just as I am one more time, and you might walk the aisle and weep a lot, but unless you understood what grace and the faith was in, you needed to pass from the law to the grace. By no means. Do you not know that if you yield yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness? Because this whole thing is a matter of who you yield to. You've been set free. You've died to sin. It doesn't have that grip on you anymore. And yet, you could yield to sin, and you could yield to God. He advises one, he tells not to do the other. Don't you know that's the nature of slavery? You are the slave of the one. You're the slave of the one that you obey. But thanks be to God. And that's just sort of a general definition. But he says, but thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. And having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. So it's a thanks be to God. Only if, only if you're one of these people who have become obedient from the heart. You sought this. You wanted this. And you became slaves of righteousness. I'm speaking in human terms. Now, these human terms, which fit the Roman world very well, everybody had slaves. Slaves were everywhere. Slaves were sold all the time. It wasn't racial slavery, it was just slavery. You just owned people. You needed to own some people. Some were highly placed slaves, some became very famous slaves, some slaves were freed, others, you know, well, not so much, but uh, sometimes there were slave revolts. Slaves were there, and they didn't have all the, you might say, the politically uh, costly remarks about racism or anything like that. But those things affect us, and we have a hard time. We said, I'm speaking in human terms, because of your natural limitations, you've got to think of it in these terms. That's why I defined what a slave was and your obedience to your master was. When it bothers us that we are given two choices, slaves to sin or slaves to righteousness, we don't like either because we think we are our own people. But in both cases, you you know you, you might and and but once you think about how people are, you begin to realize that nobody is really out there truly running their own life, creating all they need to function. They're giving themselves in to powers that decide for them, their passions or or the world or whatever it is out there that is going to direct their actions. They're trying to serve another master thinking they're serving themselves, and to some degree it is serving themselves. 
But for just as you once yielded your members to impurity and greater and greater iniquity, so now yield your members to righteousness for sanctification. Prove to yourself who you're a slave of. Because that's one of the things you're trying to do in this, is the righteousness of God, the peace of God, the love of God, the proving of those things in your constancy, um, something that is representing to you which direction, whose, whose slave you are. So, when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. So, yeah, that's the nature. They're your boss, that's not your boss. But then, what return did you get from the things of which you are now ashamed? The end of those things is death. That's what you got, death. Huh? But now that you've been set free from sin, and have become slaves of God, it's important that you remember that. You have become slaves of God. He says in another place, you are not your own. You were bought with a price. Okay? <laughs> this is the blood of God paid for you. And you were bought. The return you get is sanctification. And its end, eternal life. And then the famous verse, for the wages of sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. And you get once, once more, if you can shake, shake having seen that enough billboards. Or memorize it maybe as the first verse, that in John 3.16. The wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Looking back over the chapters and saying, he is juxtaposing the quality of the two worlds. You've got some decisions. You've got some examinations. You've got some proving to do. You've got some, say, where do I yield? What have I already yielded? Have I, have I passed from death? Have I died with Christ? Do I consider myself dead with Christ? Do I consider myself dead to sin? In that, in that weighing, it's not just wages against gift. I always grew up Baptist church. It was the wages versus the free gift. I think that's importantly there. You get paid for one. Wages, you deserve them. You don't deserve the gift. Ah, almost done. Almost got through. Um, but the uh, um, idea of... Uh, I don't want you to forget that these two things, death and eternal life, are almost more to Paul's mind at this point. By the time you've gotten here, he's thinking of the death and the life. That you're, you're not just trying to keep straight in your head the nature of uh, grace and how it's undeserved and how uh, we don't earn our salvation. All of those things true, but we sometimes, when we take a verse out of its context and use it again and again and again, we, we think it only has that one bit of good in it. It's got that good, but in this circumstance, be thinking of the death and be thinking of the eternal life. Abundance rather than measure for measure what you deserve. Well, that is the end of chapter 6. A little early. I don't mind, though, if you don't. Um, next week, as I mentioned, we'll be going through 7 and 8. Also wonderful passages, but also things that, that I want you to remember what you have to consider to be so as of Romans 6. You have to consider 
then you've died to sin. And you have to consider yourself dead to sin and alive to God. And then you, that with that knowledge, with that difference of abundance of life and measure for measure death uh, as your two choices, uh, not just the practical value of who you yield to, but how you're going to go into chapter 7. Um, but that'll be good. Let's thank God. Dear Lord, we are very grateful that we have the life in you. We're grateful for your son. We're grateful for how easy or simple this righteousness and the desire for it is before us. We'd ask that we would be the kind of followers who come to you and came to you because we wanted that righteousness you give and not think of all the excuses of how we could sin. We'd ask that you would bless us in that Prepare us for next week. In your son's name, amen.